Jim Crow was not a regional sickness. It was a national cancer. Northern liberals often critiqued the Southern systems of Jim Crow, but dismissed with a colorblind eye the structures and institutions of the Northern Jim Crow. However, the myth of isolated, non-structural racist incidents was not bought by everyone. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to the People's Forum Podcast. My name is Frizzly, and I am pleased to bring you this two-part investigation into the system Northern Jim Crow. This investigation was recorded at the end of October 2019 and was made possible by the editors and contributors of the anthology The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, Segregation and Struggle Outside of the South, NYU Press 2019. Microphone's working? Yep, gotcha. All right. So um, my name is Brian Purnell. I have the real pleasure of introducing uh, this panel, and I'm going to let the authors um, introduce themselves, if that's okay. And um, we are here for part two of a two-part um, overview of a new book um, that uh, Jean Theo Harris, Kamozi uh, Woodard, and I uh, put together and edited it and curated called The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, Segregation and Struggle Outside of the South, uh, published by New York University Press. Um, last night, we were here at the People's Forum for a panel on uh, the Jim Crow North and the excesses of policing. Uh, from the 1930s, uh, mostly through the 60s. Uh, and today, we're speaking about the Jim Crow North and the challenges of liberalism. Uh, so really just want to thank everyone associated with the People's Forum, um, all the uh, people who've worked to get the space ready, um, the tech staff, the schedule, the organizers, the publicists. This is really fantastic. Um, it's a great space. And, and we're real proud to be here. So what I wanted to do as, as one of the editors of the volume is just give a bit of an overview of what the book tries to do. Uh, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about how this, book's, this book fits into some of the scholarship that came before it. Um, and then I wanted to briefly just, as a way of introducing the three speakers, try to get us thinking about the challenges of liberalism uh, and the Jim Crow North and racism outside of the South. So um, there were f six really kind of main themes uh, that each of the 12 essays in this book tries to hit. Uh, and each of the essays does it in a different way. Um, uh, and what's, what's lovely about this book uh, I'm seeing is that all of the essays cohere around these six main themes. Uh, no matter if you read them from chapter one to chapter 12 or you jump around in them. Um, so it's a really fantastic example of the power and the benefits of, of scholarly collaboration. Um, 
the context for the Jim Crow North, for racism and segregation outside of the South, one of the contexts that we wanted to emphasize is that there is a very long history of racism and segregation as a system outside of the U.S. South. That was kind of a contextual point number one that we wanted to emphasize. This is, it's, it's, it's a long history that goes back to the founding of the nation. Uh, it's a history of segregation that's encoded in laws and policies and supported by judicial decisions. It's a history of racism and segregation that manifests in everyday life. And again, this happens outside of the South, going back to the 18th century, at least. So that's the context that we want to create in the introduction. The second kind of contextual point is that Jim Crow in the North coexisted with very public efforts to reform it. And again, that's, that's really important, so I'll say it again. This is especially true during a historical high point of American liberalism in the 20th century, which lasted from about the 1930s to the 1970s. So during a high point of American liberalism, Jim Crow coexists simultaneously, even thrives with efforts, public efforts, to reform it. So those are the two big kind of context points that we make in the introduction. And here now are the six themes that all the essays hit. Um, in, and the three uh, authors that we'll hear from tonight, you'll see these themes in different ways in their work. So uh, theme number one or argument number one is that Jim Crow outside of the South operated as a system. It was Jim Crow in the northern United States and the Midwest and in the West Coast. It was not happenstance. It was not an accident. It wasn't some sort of covert, unfortunate policy or a practice that happened because of people's individual choices. Jim Crow outside of the South operated as a system supported by policies, protected by laws and courts, manifest in people's everyday practices, encoded into the balance sheets of banks and lenders and realtors, manifest in the everyday experiences and the structural realities of schools, Jim Crow operated as a system. We're not used to talking about the North in that way, but these essays make it undeniable that that is a historical reality. Argument number two, and you'll certainly hear this a lot tonight, colorblindness, right? Arguments about colorblindness, which were a very important part of Northern liberalism in the 20th century, arguments about colorblindness served to aid and mask practices of racial discrimination and segregation. We'll, and again, we'll hear this in each of the, 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 the presentations tonight. So I'll leave, I'll leave you to emphasize this. Um, argument number three, a culture of poverty, right? A kind of social scientific notion about this 
culture of poverty that existed among poor people, especially poor black and brown people and immigrants and urban people, but that, that there was a culture of poverty discourse or a kind of culture of poverty ideology that came through in intellectual work and political arguments and journalism. There was a culture of poverty argument that blamed those who suffered most from racism with causing the social situations of their misery, right? And this culture of poverty discourse, this blaming the victims of racism as the perpetrators of their own misery because of their behavior and their culture and their individual choices, this culture of poverty discourse placed on the shoulders of individuals problems that were inherently social and structural. And this is an incredibly seductive way to, to see the manifestations of racial discrimination in every aspect of our society, in schools and in residential patterns and in under protection by police departments of black citizens and mass incarceration and poor sanitation collection and educational disparities, the culture of poverty discourse became an incredibly duplicitous, like Jedi mind trick almost, <laughs> to place the responsibility for all of these socially systemic issues on the part of individuals, right? Like, like as if one individual could be responsible for, or like individual behavior causes all the massive amounts of trash that happen in our neighborhoods and communities alone without any structural or, or political or policy imperative behind it. So the culture of poverty argument is, is manifest in a lot of the essays. Argument number four, which is one that was very important in this book that was a maturation of the scholarship, has to do with the media. And it has to do with the way that the northern news media industries selectively portrayed racism outside of the South as aberrant and unfortunate, while racism in the South was evil and systemic and shameful. But discrimination outside of the South, if it even became a focus of journalists and editors, was this kind of unfortunate mistake. Furthermore, Media portrayals of activists outside of the South is particularly important in these new historical essays which we've put together in this volume. The way that news, print news media would portray activists outside of the South fighting against racial discrimination as unhinged or anomalies or dangerous and violent served as a way to both burnish the media's bona fides as in support of the more overt and evil racism in the South and discredit what the activists in the North were saying about their everyday lives and conditions. This is a segue into argument and theme number five, which is, which is that activists Activists are the lens. They are the historical source into this history. They are one of the most important ones. We want to make the case. It's activists, especially black activists, especially black women, who consistently, for decades, 
identified conditions outside of the South as indicative of a Jim Crow system. They called it Jim Crow. They called it segregation. They used this in their intellectual work, in their activism, in their appeals to moral suasion, in their protests. And so we make the argument, and we want to really try to push this as much as possible, that activists and who they are and what they did and the communities they formed and the struggles they led are an ideal way to see what a Jim Crow system looks like outside of the South. Uh, and then, and last, uh, the essays in this book look to recast what one of our authors in his own book, Peter Levy, calls the great uprisings, the rebellions and the violence and the urban disorders of the mid to late 1960s. These essays look to situate those moments of urban rebellion and uprising as a constitutive expression of political frustration brought on by decades of neglect on issues of the Jim Crow North. That's what the book does. Um, the book, it's 12 fantastic essays, most of them historical, some of them coming from literature and film studies. Uh, it's 2019, and so this book is an outgrowth of, of at least 15 years of scholarship around discrimination and activism outside of the South. I don't, I don't, it's, it's been a real pleasure to, to do this uh, scholarship, and it's been, a, it's been a wonderful opportunity to learn from and work with Jean Theo Harris and Kamozi Woodard, who are here. Uh, their work as scholars embodies this incredible collaborative spirit that is uncommon in academic work. Um, and in 2003, they brought together authors for a volume of essays called Freedom North. Then, and that was kind of one of the first widespread examinations of activism in the civil rights and black power movements outside of the South. They did two other volumes um, on similar developed themes. Uh, and then uh, we worked together, they, 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 they organized a seminar in 2015 that brought together at least two dozen authors, two dozen scholars working on questions of the history of, of, of racism and discrimination and activism outside of the South. They were nice enough to invite me to, to present to the group. And I kind of looked at them and said, you know, I teach at this small college up in Maine. Like, let's, let's go up there. Let's keep the conversation going. And they said, well, you know, you got to get money for that. I said, I'll get money. <laughs> they, got, they got plenty of money up there, and they need to give some of it to us. So we, we were able to get, I think, almost all two dozen or maybe about 20 of the authors back up there for two days. And we just, we hammered together. We worked together. And I'd love to say that those six themes, you know, came from Gene and I and Kamozi, but they didn't, right? They came from our conversations, our scholarship, our work. Uh, and it was that time together, again, that enabled us, enabled, enabled the authors to really do the work to, to string these themes together throughout all of their essays. 
And again, that's what I think makes this anthology special, is that you can get these arguments in each of the pieces, even though the pieces are on different subjects, different time periods, different sources. So after we worked together at Bowdoin, we then did kind of the nuts and bolts work to get the essays in shape, get the contract, rework them, rework them, rework them, and we have the book that we have here. So as a way to just conclude, uh, before turning it over to these, again, three really wonderful, different, um, just fascinating authors and their, their scholarship. I just want to finish with some arguments that Martin Luther King makes about northern liberals and northern liberalism. Because that's, that's, that's our theme tonight. That's our, our work tonight is to talk about and to listen to the contradictions between the northern liberalism that we've gotten over the past 70 years, especially with respects to racism and segregation, and, the, and perhaps the type of liberalism that we need. And so King, in 1960, when speaking in New York City to the Urban League, said this. And it's this long speech about, the name of the speech is The Rising Tide of Racial Consciousness. It's 1960. And he's trying to situate where this beginning wave of black protest and consciousness and activism, where it fits into the larger nation's history and who's responsible for carrying the ball down the field, so to speak. And, and Two-thirds of the way into the speech, King says this. He says, another group with a vital role to play in the struggle for racial justice and equality is the white northern liberals. The racial issues that we confront in America is not a sectional, but a national problem. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Therefore, no American can afford to be apathetic about the problem of racial justice. It is a problem that meets every man at his front door. There is a pressing need for a liberalism in the North which is truly liberal. A liberalism that firmly believes in integration on its own community as well as integration in the Deep South. There is a need for the type of liberal who not only rises up with righteous indignation when a Negro is denied the right to live in his neighborhood or join his professional association or secure a top position in his business. This is no day to pay mere lip service to integration. We must pay life service to it. And what the essays in this book and what this 15 years of scholarship shows us is that outside of the South, Americans have paid life service to segregation and discrimination. And that the liberalism that we've had outside of the South is one that perpetuates problems of inequity and then blames the people who suffer from that inequity for the, their own social circumstances. So it is a responsibility of the scholars in this book, which they've taken on with great grace and excellent work to unveil this history, to present it to the public, and so that we can then learn from it and think about it and see how it relates to both the past, the present, and a possible future. So 
Uh, we're going to proceed in chronological order. We're going to start with uh, Chris, uh, then we're going to turn to Tahir and finish with Crystal. So thank you again for being here, and on to the author's presentations. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Christopher Burrell. I'm assistant professor of history at Ostos Community College in the South Bronx, um, which is part of the City University of New York system. Very, very proud to be uh, both a CUNY grad and also now working at CUNY. Um, I'd like to thank the People's Forum for organizing the series to you know, have us here for these two nights to talk about American liberalism and sort of the broader issues um, connected to liberalism uh, throughout the 20th century and, as Brian said, into the 21st. Uh, I'm here to discuss two black women activist intellectuals that worked to expose and eradicate Jim Crow segregation uh, in the New York City public schools during the 1950s, um, Ella Baker and Mae Mallory. And I'll talk about the strategies they used to attack systemic racial segregation and what factors made their endeavors perhaps even more difficult in the ground zero of the Jim Crow North, you know, liberal, cosmopolitan New York City. In 1954, New York City schools had the same levels of segregation as Atlanta, New Orleans, Memphis, and other southern cities. Predominantly black schools and, and Puerto Rican schools and were of lower quality than predominantly white schools, as they were in older buildings, many without um, me medical or recreational spaces. Predominantly black and Puerto Rican schools had staffs with fewer licensed teachers, larger class sizes on average compared to predominantly white schools. And this was true despite the fact that overcrowding resulted in many black and Puerto Rican students going to school on half-day schedules. As a result, predictably, black students scored lower on standardized tests. As uh, Ella Baker and the prominent child psychologist Kenneth Clark reported in 1954, by the time that uh, most black uh, students graduated high school, less than 0.2% were prepared to attend college. And so in New York, just like in the South, blacks were relegated to a second-class citizenship through an effective combination of laws, policies, and customs. And as Brian said, an ethos of colorblindness that was largely absent in the South prior to 1964 was ingrained in northern language and law through the newly invented term de facto. As James Baldwin put it in 1964, de facto segregation means that Negroes are segregated, but nobody did it. The ethos of colorblindness helped New York City's politicians and bureaucrats feign ignorance about the unequal effects of their policies on black citizens. City officials consistently refuted charges of segregation, blaming separation on impersonal market forces. The mainstream media also often downplayed or ignored the extent to which discriminatory practices were consciously utilized. White city leaders and institutions attempted to hide codified segregation in plain sight. Rather than admit that racism pervaded policies and institutions like public education, 
officials argued that racial inequality emerged from black people's poor behavior and culture. They used the South's laws as the gold standard of racism in America and pointed to anti-discrimination laws as evidence of progress. But May Mallory and Ella Baker laid bare the lies that segregation did not exist in New York, that city leaders had nothing to do with it, and that nothing could be done to fix Jim Crow New York. Mallory and Baker, in developing theories about racism in the Jim Crow North and an activist practice in fighting against it, rejected the premise of de facto segregation. Both women called New York City's public schools exactly what they were, a Jim Crow system. In doing so, however, Baker and Mallory also argued that Jim Crow was not just a Southern phenomenon, but a national one. By the time of the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, Ella Baker had been engaged in civil rights activism for decades. She operated through various organizations, grassroots groups, and governmental commissions. She developed connections to a diverse set of organizations and activists. Her ability to work with people who shared her desire to eradicate Jim Crow segregation in the public schools, even if disagreeing philosophically, signaled her ability to facilitate pragmatic political solutions. After the Brown decision, Baker continued her leadership uh, in the NAACP and accepted an appointment to Mayor Robert Wagner's new Commission on Integration to study racial disparities in the city's school system. Yet, in no way naive about the fact that her appointment was intended to blunt her criticisms of the Board of Education, Baker also started a grassroots parents organization to challenge harmful Board of Ed policies from the outside. The group Baker mobilized, beginning in Harlem, named Parents in Action Against Educational Discrimination, grew over a couple of years because of inaction and double talk from Superintendent of Schools William Jansen and other city officials, increased the frustration among black parents more and more. Baker developed and sharpened a philosophy of leadership that always sought to cultivate leaders from within the communities where struggles were occurring. As she later explained her approach, quote, people have a right to participate in the decisions that affect their lives. Activists had to start with people where they are. The first step involved organizing people around breaking down school segregation in terms of their level of understanding. Then you try to reach from one level of understanding to another. Sometimes you may have to use different strategies to focus on the same question. As Ella Baker preached, poor people knew how to solve their own problems. She saw herself as a pragmatist, giving people the tools necessary to change their own lives. One of the parents Ella Baker encountered was another native Southerner come New Yorker, May Mallory. Mallory's family moved to New York from Macon, Georgia when she was a teenager. In New York, Mallory's activism fit into her life as a working class single mother of two children. During the 1950s, the early 1950s, Mallory saw the communists in New York fighting for workers' rights against racial discrimination. Her affiliation with the Communist Party in New York was brief, 
but it expanded the knowledge that she gained from family and community and strengthened the intellectual basis upon which she thought about activism against structural discrimination. She dabbled in organizing with black nationalists afterwards, but found their inactivity and politics around gender unsatisfying. Mallory continued to assert herself on behalf of her children during the 1950s when they experienced racial inequality in schools. Dissatisfied with the principal and the conditions of her daughter's junior high school, Mallory traveled by herself to see Harlem's state assemblyman in Albany and told the entire assembly about the conditions in her children's school. Her complaints got immediate cosmetic changes to the school, but Mallory was not done. The principal tried to tar her reputation by branding her a communist and a troublemaker. She was not intimidated, however. She persisted. On another occasion, when Mallory's son was in the fifth grade, he came home with an assignment to count pipes under the kitchen sink. Mallory not only called out the teacher for assigning work of such low standards, she decided the entire school's curriculum needed to be changed. May Mallory's analysis of the problem started with her son and his teacher and their school, but she enlarged it into an action that addressed the entire city's system. Mallory recognized that low expectations led to the widespread miseducation of generations of black children. Such intellectual analysis of the Jim Crow North influenced the method, style, and explanations of her direct action. And so tired of empty talk, in 1956, May Mallory and 12 other Harlem mothers formed the Parents Committee for Better Education, documenting conditions in Harlem's public schools and collecting other evidence that showed inferior educational practices in black neighborhoods. Mallory also spoke out at a public hearing on zoning in, in the summer of 1957, telling William Jansen, the school superintendent, that her daughter's school was, quote, just as Jim Crow as those in Macon, Georgia. And then she filed a lawsuit against the Board of Education. Mallory would, be, Mallory would be part of two lawsuits against the New York City Board of Education. Don't have time to get into the details right now. But in the second lawsuit, Judge Justine Wiles Poyer ruled that she and the other parents were protecting rather than endangering the welfare of their children by taking them out of the Harlem Public Schools and creating an alternative school, though unlicensed by the state. The multi-pronged and multi-layered approach to leadership and movement building that Ella Baker and Mae Mallory displayed during their lifetime fighting for educational equality in New York was not only emblematic of their pragmatic and radical democratic method of operation, as histor historian Barbara Ransby has argued, but also of the way many other women activist intellectuals participated in the black freedom struggle. These activists balanced an idealism that focused on getting rid of racism in New York City and the nation. They balanced that with a pragmatism that focused on achieving tangible political victories against the Jim Crow schools in Gotham. Though not completely successful in every instance, their work as activist intellectuals enabled them to develop theories about how, to, how the Jim Crow North worked, and about the most effective ways to create broad, 
democratic, and flexible approaches for opposing it. These theories named Northern racism as racism, not something else, and they inspired direct action protest. All of this, both despite and because of the fact that their ideas and this movement developed in a place that constantly denied the existence of Jim Crow segregation. Thank you very much for listening. Hi, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Tahir. I, um, I'm happy to be here. I'm a graduate student at the CUNY Graduate Center, um, just a few blocks away. Um, I study, uh, I'm in the urban education department there, doing a PhD. My dissertation, um, I just want to sort of set it up a little bit about what I'll talk about, which is my chapter in, this, in the book. Uh, my dissertation research is on the City University of New York and its history of free tuition. Um, uh, just a little bit, because I, I imagine most folks here know a little bit about or heard, just like uh, Chris said. Um, so the City University, just to set it up, you know, it's, uh, it's a massive system. Um, it educates around 270,000 students every year. Um, it uh, is the third largest public university system in the country. Uh, so that means that you have California, you have New York State, the SUNY system, two state systems, and then a city system, New York City, that is the third largest. So that's, I think it's quite unique. And uh, that's kind of why I started studying it. Uh, you know, of course, uh, studying here, seeing its, um, its uh, history was very interesting to me. Um, and furthermore, nowadays, um, the administration makes a, a, a big, uh, big deal out of how many black and Puerto Rican students, students of color they educate, right? So nearly a quarter of its students uh, now enrolled are black, a little less than a third are Hispanic. Um, so it's seen as like this is, the fact that this is so means that like its mission, it's sort of like ethos, the thing that it was supposed to be um, founded on 170 years ago is realized, right? That like we came to this and um, this is uh, the fruits of a democratic system that's, um, that's worth uh, remembering. Now the problem is, if you, if I as I reconsider this history, um, especially in light of a lot of the research that the scholars here um, have been talking about, I began to question, like, well, well, what if we go back to this history and we see the, we see a disparity, right? When we see um, a school that is largely white in the 1960s, what do we make of it, right? And I think part of what I'm going to be doing tonight in, in the chapter is like setting up, like, well. It means that um, it partly it means that there's a defense of it, right? That like we can see how, like Chris said, um, administrators in my case uh, and students as well uh, defend the racial status quo, right? And deny racist uh, racial segregation to begin with, right? So that's one. The other is that, uh, and one of my goals of what I'll do tonight is detailing. Uh, how 
how deep this segregation goes, right? So part of why I think it can be hidden is that they refuse to admit how deep it goes, right? Um, in the case of CUNY, um, it's actually be partly because they refuse to even collect demographic data. And so, um, you know, that helps being colorblind uh, if you don't, you don't actually have information about that. Um, but so what, one of the things I do in this chapter in my research is to detail how, how bad it was, how deep it went. And, you know, it honestly came as a shock to me to see how deep it went. And so I want to kind of relay that to folks here. Um, the, yeah, so, so City College uh, is one of, uh, one of seven, no, now there's 20, 25 campuses in the public system here. Um, it's the oldest. It was founded in 1970, um, sorry, 1848, uh, 170 years ago. Um, and funny enough, it's actually located in Harlem, which, um, you know, for, for many years I was going up to the library there to do my research and never even thought that like, oh look, there's this school that um, was largely white for 150 years of its history um, and yet sits atop a hill that overlooks Harlem, right? And so that was kind of, that's, uh, I, I start with that ge geography just to make sure that folks know where it is. Um, and this is uh, 135th Street. Um, the Schomburg Library is down the street. Um, I think Baldwin in a poem writes about coming down from the hill to the Y that's down the street. He's, he's taking classes at City College. Um, and so there is this geography that I think, um, of course, the folks in my, in my studies don't really grapple with uh, or ignore. Um, and where I think this manifests perhaps most sharply is in 1963, um, King comes to City College for their uh, commencement. This is June 12th. Um, that morning, actually, Medgravers had been killed. And so part of his speech is to talk about that and to talk about what had just happened previous week in Mississippi where um, the National Guard gets sent out to uh, desegregate the school. So like, there's a lot of stuff happening and he's talking about the South. And um, while he's talking about the South, he's also make sure to make clear to the, those gathered, there's 15,000 New Yorkers gathered that day that, um, that racial injustice is not a sectional problem, merely a sectional problem, he says, that it's a national problem. Um, and he says that he calls upon these, uh, those gathered to see that uh, de facto segregation, this is a theme of many of our uh, works, but de facto segregation in the North is as injurious to the Negro student as legal segregation of the South, right? And so this is something that he's saying to this audience. I think there's two things I wanna highlight here. One is that to the left, here, he's standing with the president of um, City College. And in, in some ways, he's like kind of a prototypical northern liberal. This is someone who, before coming to City College, was the president of a historically black private college in Alabama. Uh, he had been elected to the NAACP Board of Directors in 1943 uh, and served there for 30 years. This is kind of like a racial liberal par excellence, right? Like, this is. What it is, but he's overlooking 
a, a school where when King speaks, less than 2% of the graduates that day, which is about 36 odd students, are black, right? And so out of almost 3,000 students, about uh, 30 are black that day, so are, are um, black students. And so um, in a way, he's, you know, he's, calling, he's inviting someone from the Southern movement to come and speak, and yet at home, he and many other administrators actively are undermining efforts to redress racial segregation or racial disparities. Um, I think as the book details, um, what distinguishes liberal northerners here is not that they were separate or exempted from this national problem, but instead that what makes them different is that they're so effective in hiding uh, the policies and practices that create and maintain the racial status quo. And in this case, they just one way they do it is they just refuse to name the problem. And what I'm going to do, what I try to do in this chapter, is try to name that problem, right? That is, once you see it, once it's apparent, it's hard to hide. Um, and um, in uh, what Chris was saying about the public schools, I see the higher education system, this is a public system, right? Just like the public schools. I want to see them as two, not as two separate systems, but as one continuous system. And that, like Chris said, um, the prior inequities or inequalities that go into how students, how black students in public schools are um, prepared for higher education. Um, that of course means that when they get to public education, they're not given the same benefits. They're not, they don't benefit from the same system that everyone is paying taxes to. So I, I see the public, these two systems as part and parcel of each other and they're both segregated. If one is segregated, the other one ought to be as well, right? Um, um, let me just get some water. Oh, yeah. So just, uh, there's, thank you. Uh, City colleges often call the Harvard the poor. This is kind of, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's been with it since the beginning. Um, it's really kind of identified as such in the 60s. So on the left here um, is actually the um, uh, statement of the founder of, city, of the predecessor of City College, the Free Academy. It was founded in 1847 here. Um, and the founder writes that um, sort of crystallizes this bold mission, right? Uh, at the time especially, a very bold mission of uh, make them uh, the higher uh, sort of schools after primary education, make them the property of the people. Open the doors to all, let the children of the rich and the poor take their seats together and know of no distinction save that of industry, good conduct, and intellect. At the time, this was like massively progressive, right? Because you had at the time a bunch of private academies where students only of the aristocratic class would get to go, right? And so for a public system to be created, uh, sort of a public institution to be created with this mission was a very bold mission. It was unique and, and um, that's kind of uh, uh, part, becomes part of an ideology around the school, right? A sort of a, 
a mission, that this is a democratic mission of the school. Um, on the left-hand side here is a, um, an, a magazine article that gets written in 1965, actually, during conflicts over what to do about the city schools, because they're growing, but they don't have enough funding. And so um, the author here uh, describes it as the har a proletarian Harvard, right? And so I just want to sit with this for a second, because there's, there's a, a, an important emphasis here that I want to make. So of course, the proletarian poor part is important, right? That uh, for the city um, poor, uh, and also especially middle classes, uh, a free higher education was important, right? That like you could not have other, many students who would not have otherwise gone to college. Um, it's also important to emphasize that it's Harvard, right? So why is it Harvard? Because it's perhaps one of the most selective colleges in the country, right? So City College is not a, um, you know, the doors haven't been opened wide open. The doors are not op wide open, right? Not everyone is getting in. It's actually very selective. And throughout the 50s and 60s, the period I study, uh, selective, the, the school's admission requirements are getting higher and higher to the point that like, they're actually worried they're even gonna get students, right? This is kind of a, a big concern is that this, these, uh, it's becoming so selective that its mission, its democratic mission is being undermined, right? And so that's kind of the context of this, this, this mission that the school has and how it's, how it's been changed by the, by the 60s. Um, so here's a, a, a piece of uh, archival material that I, that I used, um, it's very helpful. Um, as, uh, a dissertation that was written over a decade ago, um, one, uh, actually by, a, I think, a graduate center uh, student, or in New York City, he, I think he was, a, he actually taught at a CUNY school. Uh, Conrad Dyer, and he went into the school's uh, yearbook. Now, of course, like I, like I said before, they don't collect demographic data. Uh, they don't collect demographic data before 1968. They only do it in 1968 because of federal uh, uh, requirement from the, from the Department of Education that they have to bef before they get uh, funding, uh, right? And so before that, they are not, they refuse to collect demographic data. So this student, uh, this scholar goes and looks at the yearbook and says, okay, well, I'll just try to identify every black student who graduated in each year. Um, and he tabulates them and he's like, it's, got, it's like a legal pad, two sheets. It's not, uh, but you know, all the names are there as well. He's indexed every name. And you know, these numbers are not that uh, terrific. So in 57, no, sorry, 1960, there's 24 black graduates, right? And like I said before, in, throughout the 60s, it grows very minimally, right? And so I want to set that up. That's like uh, just a, a good thing to have back here while I tell you the story, right? And so the story I'm going to tell you in um, the rest of my time, I'm going to focus on a proposal that gets put out in 1964 um, by, um, by a black member of the Board of Higher Education, the body that sort of oversees the system, right? He's the second appointee to the board. Um, this is, I'm sorry, his name is, uh, sorry, uh, Benjamin McLaurin. Uh, he's the second. Uh, the first is Ralph uh, Bunch, right? Um, uh, McLaurin, he's a tra black trade unionist, um, a longtime member, uh, leader of the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Uh, 
And uh, earlier that year, uh, he gets appointed in 1963, August 1963, which is actually right, at, right around the time that the uh, public schools uh, um, with folks like Kenneth Clark are threatening to boycott, right? And so in, that, in the midst of that, they appoint the second member of the board. Um, and McLaurin comes in later that year. Um, he's speaking to the city college faculty union. And at this, uh, at this faculty union meeting, for, for some reason, he decides to propose what he sees as a, a, a decent reform, right? It's a reform that's actually colorblind, uh, but he sees it as something that could benefit the city's black and Puerto Rican poor. Uh, he suggests that uh, five to 10% of the freshman class uh, every year not be admitted based on the highly selective grades that were being used. And in this case was also standardized tests. It was a combination of high school grades and standardized tests. He says, well, let's, let's take the five or 10%, put them aside. And those five or 10 percent of the students coming in would be, um, he, he suggests, they could be nominated by their principals, right? And so in each school, the principal might nominate a student uh, or a couple students, and those students would get admitted. Instead of on the basis of their grades and their standardized test scores, but on their other merits, right? Um, this is colorblind. There's nothing in here that encodes some sort of like quota, right? Uh, or specifically racial criteria, right? And so on the surface of it, it seems like it's also kind of gels with colorblind policies, right? But uh, the responses are telling, right? And so I think I'm gonna identify, identify three here that I wanna talk about. Um, the first is actually from the chairman of the Board of Higher Education. So this is someone, this is this guy's boss, right? And he responds uh, uh, categorically denying that it's even a problem. Right? And he says that um, uh, even though he knows that there's no demographic data, and he just uh, he admits that he's, he just consulted faculty on the campus, um, he says, okay, actually, it's the most racially diverse students in the country. Right? Like, no other college has as many black and Puerto Rican students as City College does. Right? That's what he says. So simply flat out denies the basis of uh, that there's even something to redress. Right? Okay. The other is uh, a letter that a student writes. So this is a Hunter College student. She writes to the New York Times, gets published, um, in which she says that she argues that the city university should treat blacks and whites the same, right? That basically all who are qualified should benefit, right? She says, she writes, democracy is interested in all of its treasures, not the color of its jewels. Um, she goes on, actually this goes back to the sort of map that I laid out in the beginning of was that city college is situated in a Negro area does not entitle Negroes to admission. By, and so she dismisses that students are, that the black residents of Harlem were entitled, right? That like the, those who lived in the ghetto below the school were entitled to the benefits of the institution to which they, as citizens of the city of the state, were finding, uh, financing, right, through their taxes, through the hard work that they did in the city. So the student reaffirms that, like, that there's only, there's treasures, right? The city has treasures, quote unquote treasures, that, you know, we're not interested in the color. Um, and they're the ones who should benefit from the city's free education, 
right? And not all, right? And so this is, a, of course, this is coming from a student who's benefiting from that system. So it's kind of understandable. Um, on the other hand, you also have um, another, a third example. It's actually a case where, uh, you know, because the facts are pretty clear, right? Anyone who goes to campus knows that this is not Harlem, right? This is a sort of like a, a lily white campus in, the, in, in, in Harlem. Um, the Brooklyn College president um, writes, uh, gets quoted in the Amsterdam News, the local black paper here, um, that um, defends charges, defends the school against charges, discrimination, he writes, he says, um, we are not restricting the opportunity to go to college. The problem has nothing to do with race or breed or with the middle class structure of some of our students. Now he's admitting again that people have been, like the school has been criticized because it's becoming more and more middle class. It's no longer sort of the urban poor or the street peddler the kids of the street peddler who go into school, it's more of the middle class of the city. Um, he admits, he instead says that it's really a question of space. We just don't have the space, right? And now there's a part of this story that's true, and I want to, um, I'll touch on this a little bit, which is that uh, the schools are underfunded, right? And I think the public schools as well, the story there can be the same as like, those schools are crumbling, right? They're crumbling because uh, of the lack of public funding, right? And so part of the villain in this story is not these administrators, it's a prior public policy that underfunds education, right? But these administrators then excuse themselves, right, of, action, of inactivity or inaction, right? Say, by saying, look, like, well, what can we do? We don't have the funding. And so these are uh, three examples, and I'll, I'll just, what I want to conclude with here is just a little picture of how bad it is, right? And so when they deny it, or they say, oh, they're not, they're, there's inaction, or their inaction is excusable, I think it's important to know actually a little bit of the history. So this is the golden age of higher education in America. Like, we all benefited from that. That was a period when uh, public, uh, specifically public higher education expanded immensely after Second World War. You have the GI Bill, of course, but you also have states spending um, a ton of money to expand their public systems, right? So enrollment in college goes from 1.5 million before the war to 8 million after, so it's five times, right? Uh, New York is actually uh, late to the game. Uh, they are very much controlled by private colleges in the state until after uh, 19, around 1958, the, finally the state starts spending money to support the public system. Uh, it's specifically around uh, under Nelson Rockefeller's uh, 15 years in office. Um, enrollments in the public colleges in the state double. They go from 30% to 60% of the sh total share of enrollments in the state. Uh, the biggest beneficiary of this is the SUNY system. So SUNY is this other large system in, in, in the country. It's the state system. It's expand, it expands um, uh, far more than City University does but the city colleges do as well. And so it's in this context where there's actually in the, in the 50s and 60s a massive expansion of opportunity. And yet you have 30 or so odd black students graduating in 1963. So that's I think, kind of like the one, one contrast. So of course uh, there's underfunding and overcrowding, but uh, there's also a massive expansion that um, that, it, that, the, that my research is, is showing. And so the, 
the rhetoric of overcrowding and a lack of funds is actually a, serves as a racial myth. So partly it's true, right? There's overcrowding and lack of funds, but it's also a racial myth that serves to um, respond to the, any redress to racial, uh, racial disparities. Uh, it also absolves the institution itself of having any hand in it, right? And so the, uh, as we said, as we show here, the, the students, uh, if you look at the students' yearbooks here, uh, you find that um, uh, throughout the 20 years from 1950 to 1970, the number of black graduates goes from 30 to 60, right? So by, at the end of 1960, the graduate numbers have gone from, gone up to 60. And over the course of the entire 1960s, which is, I think, perhaps most galling to me, it's like 375 black students graduated from the city university. That's like less than 400 throughout the whole decade benefited from a four-year senior, uh, four-year college education um, at a time when the system is, ex is massively expanding. Um, what time am I at? Okay, great. Um, so contrary to this popular perception that uh, City College and the City University is sort of Harvard of the poor, um, what I'm showing here is that actually the black students are in, a, in part being excluded outright because they have lower grades. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll not be able to get into it tonight, but um, when they do enroll, when they are actually present, they're actually present, they're actually enrolled in the lowest tier in the system, right? So in part, they are, they, everyone is paying for this, right? It's a public good. Um, those that benefit, uh, the black students who do benefit are in um, this, the, the lower tier of the school that has less funding, uh, poor uh, sort of like two-year colleges or as night students, evening students, right? And so in a sense, first they're in a lower tier. And the other part is that in that lower tier, the students who were in the evening schools and in the, in the community colleges, unlike their um, senior college, four-year college uh, 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 counterparts, uh, they're actually paying. So when you go to evening school at City College, you're actually paying per class. If you go to community college, at least for most of the decade, you're also paying. So first and foremost, the blacks, many of the black students are just outright excluded. And those who are included, right, we're talking about exclusion and inclusion, those who are included are actually included with a price of entry, right? And so one of the things I, I try to say here in the book is that like, uh, you have actually students being double penalized. Black students are double penalized. First, they are actually, uh, uh, excluded and pay for it, pay for others. And then when they're in the system, when they do get in the system, they're again penalized because they're paying whereas other students are not. And in fact, the, the tuition money, the revenue that comes from students in the evening classes and the community colleges helps pay for the benefit of a free higher education for those, uh, for, for largely white white enrolled, um, white students who are enrolled. Um, so I'll end here. The, I think for me, there's this rhetoric of colorblind, uh, and I didn't really get into a meritocracy, this like, that, you know, this system is a system that's for the treasures of the city, right? The, the best of the best, right? Uh, we, don't care about, we don't care about your color, we don't care about your breed or, or race. Um, 
and then there's the reality, and, and I think uh, going through this, I'm trying to show that the, the, the reality is one when you see it, you get to reconsider that uh, this question of like, is this racial segregation? Like, what is racial segregation, right? If it's not this, then what is it? I think is how I would see it. And then also, when you have a public scarce good, when you, it's, a, it's a public good that's scarce, um, it's gonna be contested, right? And um, the powerlessness of some will mean that others benefit at the expense of those who are less, who are, who are less powerful. Um, I'll end here. Looking forward to discussion. All right, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Is this on? Okay, awesome. Um, thank you so much for your attention and engagement so far. I want to um, take us out of New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'm originally from Chicago, um, but today I want to talk about the urban Midwestern city, industrial city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I want to do it from the perspective of thinking about um, black women activists who were concerned about economic justice. Um, and it's really important to, um, to center black women who were concerned about economic justice because that's part of the story that we don't often um, hear about. Um, and so my contribution to the book is not only asking us to reconsider geography, but also reconsider uh, gender and labor and how we think about struggles for labor justice. And so the title of my chapter in the book is We've Been Behind the Scenes, Project Equality in Fair Employment in 1970s Milwaukee. And that first part of the title is really important, that we've been behind the scenes, because that really is an articulation um, of the work that black women do um, sometimes behind the scenes in the struggle for economic justice. And it's a recognition that despite being behind the scenes, they still feel it's important to carry on with that work. So um, if you get the book and you look at my chapter, you'll see that it's organized um, by first laying out the case in the context for uh, a Jim Crow economic system that really um, subordinated black workers to a bottom, to the bottom of an economic labor ladder. And so I lay out that context. And then I think about the ways in which one way particular, in particular, black uh, working women sought to um, resist that Jim Crow employment system. So if you go to the next slide, can you do it for me to here? Thank you. Um, uh, what you'll see is um, a question about what the character of Jim Crow employment was in the mid-century Midwest. Uh, one of the reports that the city of Milwaukee released in 1963, it was called The Negro in Milwaukee, Progress and Portent. And really what the report was aiming to do was to publicize this narrative of black progress in the 100 years since the Emancipation Proclamation. And so uh, the report claimed that the status of African-Americans had improved nationwide, but then it was also divided into two sections, talking about that nationwide improvement and then talking about Milwaukee. And the report wanted to use the statistics to tell the heartwarming story of African-American advancement. 
And so um, in the report, the, the, rep the writers of the report, which was commissioned by Milwaukee city mayor, said that African Americans in Milwaukee enjoyed access where it mattered most. And guess what they said that arena was? Employment, right? But this was a complete and total lie. Um, and so in the report, what the, the authors do is they use um, statistics to say, well, in, for example, 1950, there were 177 professional and technical workers compared to 704 in 1960. They say in 1950, there were 264 clerical workers compared to 997 in 1960. And so they give you these statistics that will make you believe, oh, there's some increase happening, right? But what the report does not account for um, is a tremendous population growth that happened between 1950 and 1960, particularly in the city of Milwaukee. Right? Because it was a, as a result of uh, World War II and the aftermath of World War II that black folks are moving, migrating to Milwaukee through the late Great Migration. And so the population swells. Right? And so then when you go to make this argument that you know, there were 200 clerical workers and now there are 700, that doesn't take into account the 187% increase in the black population, right? So then those numbers become statistically insignificant, right? And so that was one of the um, ways that the city of Milwaukee um, publicized this false narrative about African-American progress and particularly African-American economic and employment progress. By the end of the um, 1960s, you have, of course, you know, what bureaucrats love to do, and now I'm probably one of them, um, is write uh, reports. We like to research, we like to write reports, we like to, you know, find the data and publicize it. And so at the end of uh, uh, 19, 1960s and 1968, the Bureau of Research um, from Washington to DC um, did a report on African-American labor in Wisconsin. And this is what they had to say, which is the quote, is that the reality of employment for blacks in Milwaukee remains bleak. Job opportunities seem to be limited to low paying, low status, dead end jobs. And that um, the analysis is that racial intimidation and discrimination in employment remained entrenched after decades of struggle. My chapter focuses on the 1970s, but my larger work um, uncovers the decades of uh, economic activism that black working women were engaged in in the city of Milwaukee, right? So this report um, is, is highlighting that. But you didn't, you don't, you didn't need uh, formal bureaucrats to let to, to tell the story of black folks and their employment struggles in Milwaukee because black folks were already doing that. They were going to the state industrial commission lodging complaints. They were telling their stories to um, to the black press, and then like the chapter that I wrote for the book, they were engaged in organizational activism that sought to disrupt. Um, unjust economic patterns. And so um, at the beginning of the 1970s, you have, oh, thanks to here. Uh, you have the emergence of um, a nonprofit Midwestern 
um, organization called Project Equality. Project Equality begins in 1965 in Chicago, Illinois, and the, the purpose and goal of Project Equality is to kind of shift this cultural poverty thesis that would, that would blame black workers for their inability to climb some industrial employment ladder by saying it's not about the black workers, it's about the businesses and the companies and their races and discriminatory practices. And so Project Equality says we need to focus on the businesses and we need to get people in line. But because this is the liberal North and Midwest, they want to do it with a smile, right? So Project Equality wants to be um, a welcoming, a friendly compliance officer. In the wake of the passage of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, companies are now, it's illegal to discriminate in employment, um, and there's also a process um, to hold um, companies and businesses accountable, but the federal government can't do it all on its own. And so Project Equality starts to help with the compliance process. So Organize in Chicago, the process is to work with businesses and companies to make them affirmative action compliant. And then um, the outcome is that the businesses that agree to work with Project Equality in order to work on their affirmative action compliance would then be able to be put into this buyer's guide. And who has heard uh, or uh, interacted with a Yellow Pages before? Okay, we got we got some people. So, uh, so I like to think of Project Equality, the Project Equality Buyer's Guide, as a yellow pages of sort. And what a yellow pages was was a directory. There was also a white pages. The white pages were, were was a residential directory, and they were localized, so they were based on the city where you lived. Um, but the yellow pages was for the businesses. And so Project Equality Buyer's Guide was um, a yellow pages, but it featured only the businesses that agreed to um, go through a compliance process with Project Equality, a, a process, process that would determine whether or not they were actually committed to equal employment opportunity. And after going through that compliance process, then they would be rewarded by being featured um, in the buyer's guide. And why was this important? because the organizers of Project Equality realized that the group that had the second largest buying power, second only to the federal government, was guess what? Religious folks. And so they wanted religious folks to use their awesome economic power to, for moral and a just cause, which was equal employment opportunity. So if you signed up with Project Equality, you got to be in the buyer's guide. The buyer's guide then gets sent to all of these uh, religious organizations and what they are telling people is only buy from the companies in the buyer's guide. You need to take a flight, look at the airlines in the buyer's guide. You need to book a hotel, look at the hotels in the buyer's guide. There were also local supplements. If you lived in Milwaukee, you looked at the Wisconsin supplement, and if you want to get gas, you go to the gas station that is in the buyer's guide, right? And so um, really encouraging at first Catholics, but then expanding to broader um, interreligious organizations to put their money where their mouth was. All right, so that was Project Equality. Um, if we think about Project Equality in Wisconsin, one of the, um, the first organizations that Project Equality in Wisconsin worked with was the Madison Public School system, the Madison Public School District, 
Um, and this is a really kind of important case to consider because as we've heard um, from, our, from our authors so far, when we typically think of education-related civil rights activism, we think of kind of um, integration, we think about it from the perspective of students, but Project Equality was, was concerned about the schools as a workplace, right? And after actually a social studies teacher um, in Madison, him and his class did kind of a project on discrimination in the Madison public school systems. Did project, was Project Equality invited to partner with the Madison public school system to analyze um, their policies and to develop a process for making sure the Madison public school system um, had equal employment opportunities as a, as a actual, actual practice, but then also in their contract making, right? So it wasn't just about teachers being hired, but it was also who, um, who was the Madison public school system contracting um, work out to, right? Who were those companies? And were they um, you know, uh, companies of color? Were they people of color? And so it's thinking about the school system as this bigger workplace, um, and that in turn affecting students' experiences as well. So that was um, a, an early example of the work of Project Equality. And so um, let me, let me make this statement about Project Equality um, and its work, and I think this comes out a little bit in the chapter, but I want to emphasize it here, um, is that Project Equality um, and the women, the black women who I'll talk about one of them in a, in a moment, who ran Project Equality really were doing kind of the everyday behind the scenes administrative work, right? So setting up meetings, talking with people about their policies, uh, reading job ads and saying, no, you can't ask that question because that's racist and illegal. Um, uh, doing this, this, this work that is not glamorous, right? It's the work of the movement that, you know, uh, a reporter is not gonna come and say, hey, talk to me about that report you wrote or talk to me about that employment application you reviewed and edited it. You know, that's not newsworthy, right? Um, and so it's important to understand that this is the work that is going on that needs to be done to make sure people are getting jobs, right? And to make sure that workplace um, cultures are changing, right? And to call out racist and discriminatory behavior. Like, this is the work, right? It's doing this work and it's, it's mostly in the background, so you can. So in 1973, um, after about uh, three years in existence, Project Equality actually hires its second African-American woman director and her name is Betty Thompson. And the reason why I focus primarily in the chapter on Betty Thompson um, connects to a wider argument I make about the connections between black women's intellectual and economic activism. And so as part of Betty Thompson's work at Project Equality, she is a prolific writer, right? And she's always writing about um, and trying to persuade um, the mostly white people of faith why they need to continually connect economic justice to their spirituality and to their faith tradition. And so she's always writing, she's always articulating these ideas, and she's doing this primarily through an organizational newsletter. 
Right? And that, the vehicle of her intellectual activism is important um, because typically when we think about ideas and ideas in circulation, we think about books and we think about speeches and lectures and we think about the formal ways, those formal ways. But here Betty Thompson is um, writing in this newsletter, um, which is uh, every other month um, and articulating her ideas through a letters to the editor column, where she's really using this column to call uh, white people of faith to task, right, on um, their inability to put sometimes their money where their mouth is. So she's really trying to make the case. And what I um, began to uncover is what I call um, her blueprint for economic justice, right? She begins to lay out what she thinks is a strategy that would lead to um, economic freedom. Um, and so after she is hired in 1973, she begins um, writing these letters, and she writes the letters all the way up into her retirement in 2002. And so there's this rich repository of her thinking, of her ideas, um, and of her strategies for achieving economic justice. So uh, this is a, um, one quote where she talks about what she thinks is the most kind of crucial um, issue and she thinks it's equal employment opportunity, right? And so this is this is really becomes really important too, especially um, during this moment in the 1970s, um, where she's really saying, okay, now I mean it always has been, but this equal employment is the gateway, right, to other forms of opportunity, right? So employment opportunity for all minorities is one of the principal starting points in the struggle for liberation from oppression, right? And so the emphasis is mine, um, but this is something she would articulate over and over and over again in her letters to the editor. So I just wanna quickly, um, in the time that, the remaining time that I have, kind of uh, speak to a couple of points, I think, that she lays out for us in her, in what I call is her blueprint. So the first thing is that um, Betty Thompson understands that a new economic order um, needs to happen in, in this country. And she says this, the right to a decent job for every citizen who wishes to work is at the very foundation of a viable, free, and open society. And, and there are several important keywords in this quote, but one of the most important is this word decent, right? Because she's just not saying everybody get a job, but everybody needs a decent job, right? A decent job that, it that would allow them to live their lives with dignity, right? One of the things that I mentioned in the chapter is Betty Thompson's, her personal family background, and she comes from a single mother who raised a total of six children, um, and what she, what she talks about in her upbringing is that her family was poor. She describes the house that she lives on as the worst on the block, but what she also says is although her family was poor financially, they were not poor spiritually, right? But what if her mother had a decent job that took into account the fact that she had six children to raise, right? Imagine the circumstances of Betty Thompson and her siblings, if that were the case. Um, also crucial in um, Betty Thompson's blueprint was really an understanding and awareness and a study and a knowledge of history. She understood that the past um, was important and that in order to um, heal 
the wounds of economic injustice, we have to recognize the racist society that created, that created these circumstances. And so she was always reminding her readers about the importance of being really clear about the past and how that past was operating um, in the present circumstances. What she's also clear about, and again, um, what I'll make clear too, is that the majority of the folks who are actually reading this newsletter are white people, right? And there is this kind of thought that, um, you know, economic justice, civil rights, well, that's for black people, that's for people of color, right? That's their struggle, we're not involved in that. But Betty Thompson was always trying to say, no, economic justice is everybody's business, it's everybody's struggle. Um, and she says this over and over and over again, civil rights is not just for black folks and for other people of color, right? Black and white people need saving. And so in conclusion, um, what I wanna just leave everyone with um, is again, although I focus on the 1970s in the chapter, there is this larger tradi tradition um, of black working women um, understanding, articulating, and resisting economic and employment injustice. Um, and so we, and it, it and it's a, was a continued issue. This is not just something that sprouts up in the 1970s. Um, also, there were a myriad of strategies that black women were um, employing to combat this employment discrimination. But then what Betty Thompson would say um, and what she did say was that the work um, is, not, is not finished. And I want to end um, with the words of Betty Thompson because I think we can, we can still learn from her. So she says, we need each other for the larger struggle that looms on the horizon. Many do not realize that jobs, health services, housing, adequate income are not just desirable things that ought to be spread to as many people as convenience permits, but are everyone's rights. And they won't be enjoyed by all until they are acknowledged as rights to which all citizens are entitled. Now more than ever, Betty Thompson's blueprint for economic justice is needed. Thank you. So, thank you again. And um, we have about a, a half hour or whenever they turn the lights off uh, to talk. The title of today's gathering was um, The Jim Crow North and the Challenges of Liberalism. And um, we can talk about that as a group, or you can, we can talk about, you have questions for the authors. Um, again, the, the period in which uh, all of these essays cover is the, the endpoints of this high water mark in American liberalism, this time when uh, the state, the law, uh, the culture uh, is coalescing around the notion that individuals can attain a high level of civilization through employment, through protection of unions, through respect for the elderly and the institution of social security, um, and through a democratization of, of opportunity. Now what the high point of liberalism does very poorly, we argue in this book, is address systemic practices of racism and racial discrimination in cities throughout, outside of the South, in the Northeast, Midwest, 
and the West Coast in, in every facet of social life, education, housing, employment, policing. So again, I, I'll just throw out as something that we can talk about, but you, 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 we, you do whatever you want. Um, you know, is, 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 is liberalism um, a lens, a political lens that we should use to try to think about racial discrimination and racial inequality? The three papers that we heard from today, the three chapters, all in some way are both critiquing liberalism and in some ways we heard about people using liberalism as a way to try to move the ball down the field. Um, so again, just as a way to start conversation, is, a poss is, is, is that a tool that we should try to use to redress this history or is it, is it so flawed and the essays in this book have no shortage of evidence for not only how flawed liberalism is, but, but how destructive, it, I would go even how deadly liberal, I mean, to be, it's a bit glib, I'm, I'm not trying to be cute, but like liberals will kill you. Mal, you know, one of the things Gene and I put in the introduction, Malcolm X loved to talk, to contrast the Southern wolf Right? The American Southerner was racist like a wolf was racist. And Malcolm X would contrast that with the Northern Fox. So maybe liberalism is so flawed and so deadly and so destructive that that's not the tool. Right? Um, so that's just a question that I would throw out there. Is it, is it worth using and engaging as a way to address this history? Uh, or is it so flawed and so deadly and so potentially destructive and narcoticizing, because it makes you think that there's equality when there's not, that it's, it, we need something else. Nah, I wish we, I wish we were, Dana. We're not selling books. We don't, we don't have our, our marketing game up. <laughs> yeah, I always order mine from my independent bookstore when I'm trying to give it out as a gift. But I would even say go to your library and tell them to order it, so that way everybody could, could have one. Go to your, you know, your university library, your public library, and say, hey, order this book, please. Um, so yeah. Thanks, though, for asking, Dana. I, know, I appreciate that, man. Part of that is, I don't know, the book's uh, discussion of the, of the okay. nationalists. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, uh, their discussion of the nationalists, uh, which essentially are a critique of the liberals. Like you said, Malcolm X said that you can't trust them. And Marcus Garvey said that you can't trust them. So this whole line of nationalists is also questioning the steadfastness of the liberals. Uh, you know, I think when the education area, you know, um, in uh, August 63, uh, Bay and Rustin organized a march on Washington. And then six months later, in winter 64, uh, Bay and Rustin organized the school boycott, which was bigger than the march on Washington, but doesn't get discussed in any of the quote unquote uh, black history, civil rights literature. And within a month of the march, you have the split of the liberals and the nationalists 
And I think that was part of the whole neoconservative that killed the, uh, the coalition that elected Kennedy and Johnson and so forth and so on. So my question again, how do we address the nationalists? And if it's not the liberals, I mean, we do need allies. If it's not the liberals, who are the allies? Yeah, so I, 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 let's, can, can you mind if we continue up? But maybe people in the audience want to address uh, uh, that as well in your questions or comments, because it's a great point. I would actually, I would say like people like Ella Baker and May Mallory sort of used it all, right? Like they used parts of liberalism, they critiqued liberalism, they used nationalism, they used, you know, sort of left and more radical strategies. And so, you know, you, you say you use what is useful, <laughs> you know, in order to get to the goal of, of eradicating, you know, Jim Crow. So uh, that there isn't necessarily one answer, right, or one sort of way of thinking about trying to attack these problems. And, you know, uh, that the people who were acting like Baker and Mallory were adapting their strategies to the circumstances that were in front of them and using the ideologies that they felt were most beneficial or effective in that particular time and space. So liberalism and as opposed to or. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like there's a bit of a split. When you look at the uh, Kerner report, the Kerner report, uh, I forget, they, they say how many, it's a bestseller. So millions of people want to know why they were uprisings. But the uh, power establishment uh, liberals in the White House doctored the report. And they basically buried the report. We just got that report a couple of months ago. I think they published it finally. It was marked destroy at, down in the Johnson archive, right? So you have millions of people who form study groups around the country. And I think there's white people. And, um, but they've been lied to in the document and it's watered down. So like if they had been able to study the real facts of what had happened and who was who and who black power militants were and stuff like that, they may have had a, a clearer focus, right? So I think there is this dynamic between some people who are thirsting for justice and other people who are pulling the wool over their eyes. Uh, and I guess they would both call themselves liberal, but one is the establishment and the other people are people who seem to be concerned about the cities burning down and the killing of uh, large numbers of black people. I, mean, I, I, I think that uh, something that I'd like to I, so I guess sort of add on to this is because I think one of the themes that comes across in, in all of these papers and, and many of the chapters of the book is the ways in which this ethos of colorblindness, right, actually serves to perpetuate uh, racial inequality, you know, rather than, uh, you know, ameliorate it. Uh, and that this might be the innovation of Northern Jim Crow that allows it to not only thrive, but that has been since adopted, right, in, in, in the South and, you know, others that 
that sort of allows, you know, this, uh, these inequalities to continue to be these moving targets that are so difficult to pin down. Um, and so the ways in which the, you know, the, what Du Bois called the problem of the color line, right, of the 20th, that being that being the problem of the 20th century, uh, is that, you know, in some ways the problem of the erasure of the color line might be the problem of the 21st, right, that we don't want to be race sensitive or, or class sensitive at all in the way that we think about trying to remedy uh, racial inequality. Uh, and so how can we, you know, sort of deal with the the problem that colorblindness has um, you know inflicted on our society and on our versions of our ideas of liberalism um, in the United States throughout the 20th century, I think would be something. Hello, this question is for Crystal, Dr. Mon. Um, could you say more about how your um, going to conceptualize the kind of women's work that's all often invisible like what 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 strategies are you are you do you intend to use to make it much more central because i i feel like um this is sort of a a typical problem that that certain kinds of work is um focused on and glamorized um and the kind of work that you're speaking to um, is often missed out. Um, and so what kind of strategies are you sort of using to sort of um, highlight it and, and, and even potentially push it forth in such a way that um, when, we, when we see it, we know what to call it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I can talk, talk a little bit about how I um, both read and understand primary sources in the archive, because that really is what is shaping how I'm particularly thinking about the intellectual contributions of black working women. Um, and so when I, when I approach the archive and I'm looking at, say, the organizational records of, say, the NAACP, um, or in my instance, the YWCA. Um, what I have found is that the black women who are working in these organizations, they're on committees, and they write reports, and they write memos, and they write resolutions, um, and they ask questions in meetings. Um, but the way that we have narrated those types of intellectual interventions is to not care about them. Right. So, for example, when I write about the first black woman president of the Milwaukee NAACP, um, what begins to happen during her presidency is working people, both men and women, um, begin to come to her and talk about the employment discrimination that they're um, experiencing. And so there's a particular case where um, during um, 1951 and 1952, about a hand, two handfuls of working women at the Catholic, Catholic hospitals in Milwaukee kept coming to the NAACP, kept coming to speak to Artie Halyard, who was the president, about their experiences. And so what she does um, is she creates, she writes a resolution that she reads in the board meeting, and then she disseminates this resolution to 
the broader Milwaukee NAACP um, um, membership. And so I see that resolution. I see her writing um, the experiences of those predominantly working women into the records of the NAACP as a really important both intellectual and economic act, right? But no one has written and said, oh, the resolution making of black civil rights activists um, is something that we should actually look at, or the memo writing, or in the case of the um, the black YWCA worker who's forced to resign has this back and forth correspondence between um, her employers who are the board of directors um, saying, I refuse to work under these conditions, right? And I'm articulating um, the unfair treatment in the Y, which is my workplace. And I think one solution is to one, pay me more. And then another solution is to let us unionize. Right, And so it's looking at these particular uh, primary sources and understanding them as intellectual acts, right? Where black women are articulating their ideas about what economic justice is and means. And me as a historian, historian taking that just as seriously as a speech act, right? Or as publishing a book by an academic press, right? The, it's taken seriously where black women are articulating their ideas and then analyzing those ideas and reading and understanding what it is they're trying to say and articulate and disseminate. So that's what I do, yeah. Thank you. Um, this is a question for Christopher and Tahir. Um, uh, you were, and I'm wondering what you think uh, the role of uh, academic scholarship is in uh, holding these administrator, administrators and uh, policymakers accountable to make uh, schools less segregated. Because as um, Christopher, you mentioned, uh, academic scholarship has been like a driving force in um, the culture of uh, poverty. And I'm kind of wondering how the both of you reconcile um, the ongoing disparities in education with your own um, academic research. So it is <laughs> both about, um, for me at least, the work that I do in the classroom in the way that I teach about US history uh, and the civil rights movement in particular, um, and, and talk about issues of inequality in structural ways, and talk about the fact that uh, Jim Crow is an, and was a national phenomenon as opposed to a Southern one. And so trying to re-educate the students that I come in contact with on a daily basis uh, and, and try to give them a more comprehensive sense of the sort of trajectory of US history. Uh, but then also uh, trying to make sure that in the way that I write, that I'm also um, making sure that I'm familiar with uh, a, a broader sort of scope of scholarship that also takes these things uh, more into uh, effect. 
and I'm continuing to learn about you know new movements that are that are starting and and you know quickly trying to educate myself about groups like Teens Take Charge you know who are you know holding the New York City public school system to account today to sort of try and deal with the fact that New York City now has the most segregated public school system in the country um, and not just one of the most right. Uh, and, you know, being the largest school system in the country, what are the implications of the fact that when we talk about the specialized high schools, that, you know, less than 1% of them or some, some very in, you know, small percentage like that are, are, are African-American? Um, and how can we get away from colorblind policies um, that do not take into account the structural um, inequalities that have persisted for decades and that have created these vast inequalities that exist now. So it sort of goes back to, you know, what I think these women were calling out is that this um, call for colorblindness was one, disingenuous, uh, and two, was actually allowing for the perpetuation of racial inequality rather than the amelioration of it. And so being able to identify it uh, is the first step in ultimately being able to break it down. Uh, and so I, I'm trying to um, connect the historical scholarship to current circumstances and then how I communicate that to the students that I come in contact with. Um. I'll echo Chris's point about how present struggles really do matter for how um, how we revisit some of this history. So, um, of course, there's um, they had a tuition hike this past year. The city colleges had a, a tuition hike this past summer. Um, these are ongoing fights, and that's for the past uh, decade. This is really influence me, right? So I think that's part of it. It's just like as scholars, just you're living in a world that these these are fights that are ongoing. And so uh, you take inspiration, you take lessons, and you um, uh, go to this history with, with, that, uh, with that perspective. I think the other part of your question was um, uh, made me think about how administrators at the time fought uh, administrators and academics. So I think one example is Kenneth Clark, who's a professor at City College. He is, you know, he's an expert witness at the Brown versus Board of Ed. He's like very much involved in the city's desegregation fights. He's a City College professor, which, um, you know, uh, I feel like is unfortunately not, not been studied uh, much. But one of the things that he does at City College is try to shine a light on the system, right? I mean, he sees that uh, a system that is racially segregated. I think in many ways he's a, very much committed to liberalism, right? He wants to redress these ills of, uh, of the system. Um, and the way he does so and the way many liberal administrators do so is, is they try to shine a light. They say, look, like, um, we're going to hold you to what you say, right? So if your mission is... Um, uh, is, you know, uh, has this democratic ethos, then it should be for all, right? So hold, hold them true to, to their commitments. 
Um, and the other is to undermine the basis in which I think liberalism fails, right? So um, they, one, of the lie, one of the sort of myths, at least in the university, is that, well, the most qualified have come in, right? Like we have, and we, you know, we have admitted those students uh, uh, not on the basis of their whiteness, but they were the most qualified, right? And so uh, Kenneth Clark and two um, uh, administrators who I study, um, their argument is not so much that, like, look, you should admit a racially diverse student body. They say, look, the basis of what you're admitting students on is flawed, right? And so in some cases, this is because of their commitment to racial justice. Sometimes it's just a commitment to you know, uh, sort of a liberal sense of equality, right? They see the system as flawed, just on the liberal sense, on the liberal basis. Others see it as an unjust system that's racially unjust and that you attack it through colorblind policies, liberal policies, but you think they actually undermine the basis. So for, for colleges, I think still, you have colleges that have a very selective admission process that those students who are admitted to the most selective, most premier, most high cost programs are those students who've been deemed most qualified, right? And you know, it's a question like, well, does that, is that the student who will actually benefit most, right? Who will make use of it the most, right? And so many of them in the 60s, the, their, uh, their reports to administrators is to say, look, we've admitted these, these students, only 40, 50% of them graduate. On just that, that simple basis, we can say that our system of admission is flawed, right? We did not admit students who were qualified because 50% of them decided not to finish, right, or failed to finish. And so I think part of the, you know, the challenge that, um, you know, folks committed to racial justice at the time face was like, how do you tack this system? And I think they tacked it on the basis of its liberal commitments. And many of them you know, just saw it as part of their liberal commitments. And some of them saw them as a much larger, uh, a broader uh, ideology of like equality. And so. Can we, can we do, have time for one more? Or one or two? comic question for the whole of the panel, if that's okay. So I, just thinking about the ways in which, Chris, you're saying, right, that, that somebody like Baker and Mallory are like, well, we'll use a bit of this and use a bit of that, which is super flexible and smart as a strategy, right? Um, and so there's kind of a let's work within the system with some people, right? And there's a like kind of like let's increase the largesse for everybody and like work on like inclusion and things like that, which is all very liberal strategy sort of stuff. But it feels like one of the things like across the board that is like a rejection of uh, a key pillar of liberalism is the kind of constructed ignorance uh, that the colorblind theories are a part of. Um, and a whole bunch of other sort of rationales, right? That this sort of um, crappy knowledge that liberalism puts out and rationalizes again and again is sort of something that they're just not gonna stand for. 
Um, and I guess I wonder, I don't know what my question is now, but I mean, so it, I guess part of what I was really struck by is to hear your people, like they have to work really hard to keep being, to keep ignoring and ignoring and ignoring and like they're, the ignorance that they construct, it takes resources and labor and money and rationale and like that is a lot of work they put in to that, you know, being that ignorant. And um, I guess part of what I'm just really fascinated by is where, where knowledge and ignorance comes into the question about liberalism and the extent of its usefulness and just what people will and won't put up with, I guess. I, I think it kind of gets at the, the, the larger liberal project about the story of America. Right. I mean, and the, you know, the story of America is supposed to be one of meritocracy and continued, you know, improvement towards this perfectible society. Uh, and in a place like New York, that was based on, you know, this, you know, um, picture of being, you know, the most cosmopolitan, you know, and and open city in the country, you know segregation doesn't fit into that narrative, you know? Um, and so it was worth it for, I guess, you know, these uh, superintendents of schools and whoever to try and protect that narrative at all costs. Um, but then you have, you know, activists like Baker and Mallory who, again, absolutely refuse to, you know, um, subscribe to this, uh, um, this, this, terminology uh, and, you know, are cutting directly, you know, to the heart of um, what the inequities are, you know, and they're doing that with the words that they choose, you know, the use of Jim Crow by May Mallory is deliberate and, uh, and, and pointed. Uh, and the fact that they call... Uh, out segregation and refuse to go by separation, which is what the New York City school system, you know, wants to refer to it as, because they want to talk about racial imbalance and they want to talk about housing uh, segregation as a way to try and absolve themselves from having to do anything about the school system. Um, and so, um, the 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 women that I that I write about in the chapter, and you know, many other activists are, you know, very deliberately, you know, sort of choosing both their, their rhetoric and their actions in order to try and cut through the, the liberal myth uh, that New York City and many other northern places, obviously, you know, are constructed upon. does seem to be a narrative strategy uh, to hear uh, your president or whoever it was said there were no demographics. They didn't keep demographics. The president of Dickinson College in his memoir said he'd heard a rumor that the dorms were segregated, mm. right? Uh, mayor Wagner said he didn't know there was a housing crisis before he was the mayor the head of the housing department. Right. So there's like a narrative strategy is I'm not this is not criminal negligence. I just don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not responsible for it. Right. right. 
the northern thing is so important because at one point they were trying to count how many sharecroppers there were in the black belt, right? And then that's how you find out about racial oppression. The work you're doing now, this is the epicenter of black America. New York City got bought more than two and a half million black people. That's more than they got in the whole state of Mississippi, right? So, so the, the center has moved here, and if we are blind to how racial oppression operates here, you know, we're playing with an old ball game, right? It's not about sharecroppers anymore and, and, and cotton, picking cotton. It is about educational inequality, housing inequality, employment inequality. If we don't understand that, we can't call ourselves really on the ball anymore for the 21st century. Um, I, the liberalism wouldn't save us. Now, if it would, you, when we elected a liberal black president, that would have solved the Jim Crow problem. I really have a serious point to make beyond that. But uh, Malcolm X was trying to draw the line really north. But it's really all the way to the North Pole. <laughs> and when we talk about South, it's way South than the Everglades and the end of Florida. And I think not drawing it, not the extended demographic, is a real problem and a challenge for people like yourselves who write. Because it seems the, the analysis, you, you're only left with solutions for the area, whether it's Milwaukee or Chicago, New York, solving the New York problem. But when it, you see it's globalized, and the president, the liberal president, was the president of the world, then I think things take on a different color, so to speak, right? So we still can't go to the beach in Jamaica as natives, and we still can't, uh, Exxon can come in and run, drill for oil in Guyana, for example, uh, completely tax-free, while local business people suffer on oh, like a 40, 50% tax. So this idea of Jim Crow that ending at Florida or, 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 the, or the Canadian border probably needs to be addressed more seriously. Um, sure. It was just uh, curious for to hear because um, one of the things we've been talking about a lot is equality, right? And I worked at City College San Francisco, as you guys all know, which was another huge um, public educational system, but in the West Coast. Um, and it was kind of opposite. They had this sort of open door policy. So uh, it really didn't become diverse until I'd say around the, the 60s, similar story. But it's prided itself on its diversity, which has actually been real. But in that sort of liberal school, I've, I've seen a lot of those students who represent the marginalized communities. So anyway, long story short, be sort of shut out. Um, and then when they sort of fall through the cracks of the school, the school's like, well, we're solving the problem. Our numbers are increasing. So I wanted to just get your thoughts on how liberalism, even within more inclusive, like, 
schools like City College of San Francisco can operate because we have this program now, just as an example to kind of pull from, so it's more specific, called uh, Free City, which actually made the tuition free for anybody that lived and worked in San Francisco, which on the surface sounds great, right? But then majority of the students who are working class are actually pushed out of San Francisco. So now it's actually people who are making six figures who can take their ceramics class for free or something else for free. And so like, you know, so I was just curious your thoughts about that because I, I, there was a lot in your story that sort of mirrored my experience, but it was sort of the opposite of let's be inclusive and have everybody, but still how, how these sort of forces were still able to operate on that. I think Say's question uh, connects this connects to what you what you asked as well. Um, at least how I want to respond to it. One is um, like I think the um, the idea that the these administrators or policymakers are ignorant or there's ignorance, blind ignorance, or um, I mean I think it makes makes their job easier, perhaps, right? Um, I think what's the alternative, right? That's how I think of it. It's like, well, what could they have done otherwise? If they didn't do this, if they didn't just excuse the system as it is, what could they have done? Well, first and foremost, like, they would have had to be probably like Ella Baker and May Mallory, grassroots organizers, which administrators are not, right? And policymakers are not, right? So they don't have that weight, that social weight behind what they think is right to realize it, right? And so the other option is, well, they can mobilize a political force to support what they want. And I think that, in that sense, they cannot, right? They cannot materialize a political force that would call for redistribution in the way that we would have, they would have had to, right? And so um, in New York City, in, the, in, in, in my case, what I see is the, the administrators are very worried about losing white students because Whites are leaving the city, um, and if the school uh, was redistributed so that it represented more of the city's actual demographics, well, what would keep a white middle-class family in the city? And on that basis, just like, yeah, that's just tax money. Like, well, if a school system, how are you gonna fund it? You're gonna have to fund it somehow, and you're gonna have to keep the people who are funding that system largely still in the city. And so that reinforces, well, we can't change that, right? You can't redistribute in that sense because you're gonna threaten a political basis for the system as it is. And so I, I think it's not, um, it, uh, I like to see it in like just that political sense, like, well, what is the political options that were available to these actors, these, uh, these administrators, policymakers, um, people at the top who have control, but really don't have the ability to change the system, right? They can redress, they can alter, they can t tweak knobs, but they don't have that ability to mobilize a political force um, either um, um, uh, within the school or outside the school, right, to make those changes happen. And I think in, when you think about inclusion, it's like, yeah, like they're going to try, they have to, right? But also at the same time, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, they might include students on the basis that they're a source of revenue, right? And so students, yeah, like you can admit students into, so in our, in, in higher education, like uh, programs of, uh, uh, like master's programs are expanding, 
right? You have students coming into universities, into master's programs. It's sold as sort of like expanding opportunity, but it's also a huge boon for schools that are cash-strapped, need new sources of revenue when the state is not giving as much as they used to. And so I feel like the inclusion-exclusion formula here is, is uh, you have to question like, well, what is the benefit to that school? You know, it's not just um, that it can present itself as having done something in the, in, in the right direction, but also actually support and extend what the institution's about, right? So. Well, I think uh, I don't want us to wear out our welcome. Quick Bernie question. Yeah. Of course. Burning or burning? Bernie. Bernie. in the black community. And I think his argument is a kind of uh, a progressivism that sort of colorblind will be able to address the problems in the communities of color. And uh, so I'm just wondering your view. You know, I was asking earlier, if the liberals have failed, what is the alternative? Is that a possible alternative? So, uh, well, I, I, maybe I can, Chris, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I always come to, um, in, in all the reading and all the research and all the conversation, it, that, that um, it's impossible to redress, to redress the problems of racism if we don't address or acknowledge race. Um, Ideally, um, universalist programs that seek to create public goods that are open and available to everyone, ideally, and, 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 and making the, those types of services and public goods more robust and more extensive, ideally, that extending out to all people uh, is desirable. Um, but again, historically, we know that inequities based upon class and gender and sexuality and race and uh, um, citizenship and what have you serve to dehumanize some of our most idealistic attempts to uh, create equity and opportunity. So I... I I, again, I, I liked how Chris said it, we, can, we, we, we should try to think intellectually about both. So um, it's a, it, I, I would argue that it is wrong for someone promoting a more universalist, democratic, socialist agenda to try to downplay uh, uh, deeply, deeply embedded problems associated with uh, race and gender and sexuality. Um, that is the wrong way to move forward with the right program. And I, I, I would, which I do think that that is the right program. Um, and I guess just as a, maybe as a means of concluding, we could keep talking until they kick us out. But before we started, Gene, uh, Theo Harris and I, uh, we were talking about Martin Luther, We've had this ongoing conversation about Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King's critiques of liberalism and, and northern liberals. And Gene um, wrote a really great op-ed in the New York Times earlier this year about King 
and his criticisms of the North. Um, and before we started, Gene hit me with this gem about how in, in 1957, at the prayer pilgrimage in Washington, D.C., it's one of King's first national addresses in 1957. King is hammering home in 1957 a critique of Northern liberals. And what's I found to be both um, provocative and challenging, but also quite beautiful and inspirational about King's critique in 57 is that he, he says um, liberalism has to, has to pick a side. It can't just be colorblind. It can't just see all sides. It can't just, liberalism can't just be some watered down approach to equality. It has to have within it, um, and I'm paraphrasing, some, some core values and some core principles of what justice would look like. And, and that is in reading the book and editing the essays and listening to these great, great presentations today and yesterday, I see that that is what is both absent in all of the, the authors point out the absence of that core central principle, but the authors also point out whether they're talking about a community suffering from terrorism by police and inequities in housing and then responding with an uprising, that was Elias. All of the pieces have within them, whether they're talking about, I wouldn't call it an, a, a judge that is promoting civil liberties, that shouldn't be out of the ordinary, but whether the essays are talking about the judicial system or they're talking about communities or they're talking about education or they're talking about behind the scenes administrative activists, intellectual bureaucrats, the essays contain within them a critique of the absence of this core principle that King was talking about. And the essays also contain within them the presence of these core principles in these varieties of activists. And, the, and even in Tahir's piece, he doesn't foreground activists, but all through Tahir's piece, there is a push by CUNY students for, for open admission. So I, I think that that's happening in, 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 the, in all of the pieces at the same time. Um, and you know, whether or not that's what we need, I think that's what the essays inspire us to think more about. And so I do hope that if you can, you can ask an independent bookstore to pick up the book for you. Um, the paperback is, I'd say, relatively affordable. Um, but it is a little expensive. I think the paperback's about $30. I paid $30 in my independent bookstore for it. Or even better, again, better than buying it on your own would be to try to get a library, a public library or a school library or both uh, to acquire it um, or, or so that lots of people can read it. And maybe even starting a reading group uh, about it, maybe even at a place like here at the People's Forum. So. Um, this has been a fantastic two days. Thank you again to the People's Forum and um, to, the, to, the, to the, the person in the booth um, and to the, to, the, to the volunteers and staff that are letting us uh, stay beyond our time. But And most importantly, uh, really, on behalf of the other editors and authors, we really appreciate you giving your time and your energy to be um, attentive and participatory uh, and, and challenging in, in the times that we've had together. Thank you so much.
Thank you for tuning in. If you wish to learn more, you can sign up to our newsletter at www.peoplesforum.org. We encourage you to check out our other podcasts, including The New Intellectuals, moderated by author and historian Jordan T. Camp.